Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there, went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God. Good morning. I'm Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption. And we've been going through the the Gospel of Mark week by week throughout the year. And this week we've come to quite an incredible story. And I'm excited to to dig into it together and to see what the Lord will teach and do as as we look at it together. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, what an incredible thing we've just read about. We thank you that that these are not just words and stories on a page, but these are real, actual historical events and people, which you've inspired to be a part of the Bible, which you've preserved for us, for our instruction, for our encouragement. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, as we see you in this passage. And as we open your word this morning, we ask that you'd guide our time together, make it fruitful, I pray. We ask that the Holy Spirit would work on our hearts and our minds to instruct us and to guide us and to strengthen us. Help us this morning to take more notice of Jesus, of who he is, to see him more clearly for who he truly is. Help us to run to him to cling to him, to walk with him, especially in our most difficult moments. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. A few months back, my son and I were working on on a jigsaw puzzle together, and it was quite a complicated jigsaw puzzle. Uh, We'd look at, at a little tiny piece, and we wouldn't know if it was grass or a bush if it was pavement or a castle, if it was a boat or a house. And it wasn't until we started putting some pieces together that we realized what that individual piece was and until we could see the bigger, clearer, more beautiful picture that was being put together. And so as we look at this incredible story 
in Mark chapter 5, the raising of Jairus' daughter, as incredible as it is, there's even more to this story than just the fact that Jesus raised a girl from death to life. That's no small thing. But it's even better than that. And so this morning we're going to zoom in on that story and look at it. But first we're also going to zoom out in order to see what else is going on. To see how this short scene is connected to what has just happened in Mark in previous weeks. And we're going to see that it's part of a cluster of related stories and parables that work together. And we're going to see how these portions of the book of Mark complement each other and work together to paint a fuller, clearer picture of who Jesus is. And so while we look at this particularly important and incredible story in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus raises this girl from death to life, we're going to observe that this episode highlights a few things. First, we're going to look at Jesus' power. Then we're going to see what it says about Jesus' goodness. And then we're going to look at what it says and teaches about Jesus' power and authority over death. So this morning we're picking up where we left off. It was three weeks ago now. So for those of you who weren't here three weeks ago, or or for those of you who, like me, can't remember three days ago, uh, last time we left off, Jesus had just returned back across the Sea of Galilee from the Gentile side. He had just... He had just met this this Jewish religious leader named Jairus. Uh, He was a man in good standing, a leader. And he approaches Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. But before Jesus arrived at Jairus' house, the scene was interrupted. There was a desperate woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years who pushed her way through the crowd and touched Jesus' garments and found she was immediately healed. And this was wonderful news that she was immediately healed. But that's where we left off three weeks ago. And perhaps you're wondering, perhaps you left off thinking, but what about the little girl? And I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to it. But first you're going to have to wait a couple more minutes. But you know what happens anyway. So zooming out, first I want you to see that this story about Jairus' daughter is part of a cluster of stories, a cluster of four stories which serve to display who Jesus is, and they show his powerful acts. In the first story, Jesus calmed the sea. There was a great storm with great waves, and Jesus, by the word of his mouth, calmed the storm and the sea. He demonstrated power over creation and nature. In the second story of this cluster, Jesus enters Gentile lands and he expels a legion of demons from a man, showing that he has power and authority over all principalities and powers, the spiritual realm. Then in the third story, he returned back across the sea into Jewish lands and heals a woman who'd experienced 12 years of chronic bleeding, who had exhausted all medical remedies and treatments. And in each of those stories, just like in the story of Jairus' daughter, we see that all other options and powers had been exhausted and had failed to provide resolution to these problems. 
And here again in this fourth story, Jesus confronts death. He confronts the death of a little girl. And so, while we're zooming out, we see this this power of Jesus on display again and again, painting this picture of who he is, of what he will do. And while we're zooming out, what's more, these four stories also demonstrate exactly what he had just taught in his parables right before that. You might remember from several weeks back, months back actually, that in his parables, Jesus taught about his kingdom, that he said it's an unstoppable kingdom, that it's a kingdom that's going to now include the Gentiles, and that it's a kingdom that is going to be received by faith alone. And so these healings, they work together like pieces of a puzzle to reveal aspects of who Jesus is and to make credible his claim all the way back in Mark chapter 1 that the kingdom of God is now at hand. Jesus is bringing restoration and renewal to a fallen creation. He commands nature. He goes beyond Israel into Gentile lands and expels demons who cower before him. He rescues this man from their grip. Then he heals and preserves a Jewish woman and restores life to a child. Throughout these stories, Jesus has also done the unthinkable. He's boldly touched an unclean leper, an unclean bleeding woman, and an unclean dead body. All of these are violations of the Jewish religious system. All of these uncleanliness aspects separate a person from the temple and from society. But Jesus is no ordinary person. He's unlike anyone else, and he is above all this. He is not threatened or polluted by these impurities, but rather he extends his purity and his holiness to others. Each of these pieces of Mark's claim, of Mark's book, describe aspects of Jesus' power and authority over all things. And together they present a formidable and multifaceted description of who Jesus is. And so while this cluster of demonstrations of Jesus' power displays his divine nature and his authority, it's not just what he does, but it's how he does it that colors our picture of who Jesus is, of how powerful he is, but also work together to demonstrate the profound goodness of this Jesus. Not just to prove his brute force, but to demonstrate his unwavering compassion, his kindness, and his love. So now I want to move on to show that this story also demonstrates Jesus' goodness. And we all love, we all love an underdog. We all love a surprise. In recent years, uh, you probably remember, there are sports teams like the Houston Astros, the Toronto Raptors, the Kansas City Royals, and yes, even the Chicago Cubs have been unlikely winners of championships. We're more used to teams like the New York Yankees or the Patriots, maybe now even the Warriors. They keep winning. They keep impressing us. But eventually we start to get desensitized to that. 
Maybe part of it's that superstars get conceited and prideful or fall into scandal. Maybe we just begin to think of them that way. But either way, it starts to lose its luster and respect turns into resentment. The yay turns into yuck. And so here we see Jesus has done four back-to-back-to-back-to-back miracles. But unlike the Yankees, there's no conceit, there's no pride or scandal to be found in Jesus or in his mighty works. But instead we see his unwavering goodness and his care for others is further expressed and shown here in Mark. So while Jesus is going with Jairus to his dying daughter, we've noted the journey was interrupted, the episode was interrupted with the story of the bleeding woman. And so there's this this tension between this destitute outcast who's suffering and this this girl from a, a wealthy, respected family on her deathbed. There's this tension. What's Jesus gonna do? In our lives, we're, we're so limited. We have limited time, limited resources, limited attention, limited money to try to do good. But as we learn here, with Jesus, this is not the case. It's not a zero-sum game. Jesus cares for, and he heals both of these women. He has the power that he doesn't have to choose between the two, And he has such goodness that he doesn't choose, but helps both. Unlike the world, he's not limited in his resources and his time and his attention, and so he doesn't compromise his goodness. He doesn't neglect the poor to help the rich, and he doesn't neglect the rich to help the poor. And that's the kind of thing we're seeing in these four complementary stories is that together they show that Jesus neglects neither rich nor poor, neither Jew nor Gentile, man, woman, child. And so here we have again in Mark chapter 5 this evidence that the God of all creation values each person and each people. And there's no wiggle room None at all for defending or tolerating things like white supremacy and racism and bigotry here in Christianity. There's no room for that. And I think it's important for us to say that here. These issues have have continued to rear their ugly head here locally and in our society even this week. And we need to call them out and be clear that these are violations of how God has wonderfully created the world, that he cares for and loves everyone who's made in his image. These are violations of how God wonderfully, in his image, creates all people, and how Jesus himself gives gives his own life in death as a savior to bring to himself people of every tribe, every nation, and tongue. This is a glorious wonderful thing about Jesus and who he is. If you look back at how today's passage began, you'll see that it begins 
saying, while he was still speaking, there came from Jairus' house messengers who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And Jesus overheard that, but he doesn't ignore it. He isn't irritated by it as an interruption to what he's saying. He's not embarrassed that it seems that he failed. And he doesn't see this as an opportune excuse to just walk away, escape the crowd, and end his day after, after a long journey across the sea. But instead, Jesus immediately turns to this father in this most difficult moment and speaks a word of comfort, saying, Do not fear, only believe. And that, that's not an easy thing for Jairus. That's not an easy thing for any of us to walk by faith and not by fear in the middle of life's worst moments. But it is a wonderful call. How different is it is that Jesus says, only believe, as opposed to something like, do this for me, or prove yourself, or maybe one day I'm going to call upon you for a favor. It's not like that. That's not how Jesus deals with people. In an old job, I used to travel all over the world, and and there was one particular place that I went that stands out in my mind. Um, I saw these kinds of things all over the world in in different religious contexts, but in one particular culture, I saw and noted that that there were these small temples, uh, you know, looking like a big birdhouse on the side of the road. And they had candles. They had little pieces of food and water that people would come and bring to them in order to appease different spirits or different ancestors. And when people would drive past in their cars, they would always honk their horns. Every time you drive past, you honk your horn to recognize this spirit and earn something from them. And it's, it struck me as this, this terrible slavery that people had that in order to stay protected, in order to stay healthy or, or alive and safe, they had to do something in this religious system. But that's not what Jesus says to Jairus in this terrible moment. He cares for Jairus and his family, and he gives to him freely. He doesn't offer some kind of trade or transaction. He doesn't require anything of them. He simply calls Jairus to believe in that most difficult moment. And then he walks with Jairus. Jesus' kindness and his care to Jairus is further seen in verse 40 when we notice that he not only took Jairus but he also took the grieving mother with him to raise this girl. And as a side note, we've made multiple multiple observations of similar things in the Gospels over the last couple years where we've seen examples of Jesus' particular concern, his particular effort to care for grieving mothers. And here he does it again. He's not indifferent 
or unaware of the griefs and the sorrows that these parents face. And he doesn't walk away, but he walks with them. And he's not indifferent to yours. He cared deeply for a desperate woman, a grieving mother and a father, and of course for a little girl. He cared for Jairus' children, and he cares also for yours. And so if I can be so forward as to plead with you a bit this morning and to press on you and encourage you, when you don't know if you can, and when you don't know how, bring your cares to Jesus. Bring your needs and your worries and your griefs. Just as Jairus did, as the bleeding woman did, he welcomes you. So seek his presence and seek his comfort in these impossible moments where everything else fails. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so he hears you as you pray and as you groan. He'll never leave you or forsake you, but he'll walk with you when there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. Like he's done for Jairus, like he's done for me, and as I expect he's done for many of you. He'll do it again. And as we sang this morning, he's the mediator between God and man. He ascended to heaven and is seated now at the right hand of God the Father and now lives to intercede for you, to pray for you, even now. And we're so used, I think, we're so used to singing and hearing and talking about Jesus' goodness as it relates to his suffering and his death on the cross, his forgiveness of our sins that we neglect other parts of his goodness. Those things are crucial and of utmost, utmost importance, yes. But we can't also forget or neglect these additional evidences and smaller pieces of the puzzle that paint the bigger, more colorful picture of who Jesus is, showing his goodness and his care for you. And so, yes, this is an incredible story today about Jesus raising a little girl. But it's even better than that. There's so much more to it. And I hope that you can see that and that you can see his goodness and run to him. Now I do want to move on and zoom in and look particularly at this story and what it says about Jesus' power over death. As I mentioned, this story of the little girl is the last of four back-to-back scenes depicting Jesus' power. And here in today's passage, we can't get desensitized. This is the fourth miracle of four, and it is the climax of the cluster. It's the exclamation point of this section of Mark. In today's story, it becomes more and more clear. Jesus is not just powerful, but he's God himself. He is the awaited savior of mankind. In today's story, the problem presents itself right away. The messengers arrive and they say, why bother the teacher? This girl is dead. And then as Jesus arrives on the scene, we hear that the mourners, they laughed. 
And that's plausible because when it comes to death, what hope is there? Perhaps they've just seen, maybe they've heard of Jesus' previous miracles. But even still, death is final. What can be done about death? It is a formidable, painful, and powerful enemy. And we hurt because it's stolen loved ones from all of us. We can try to fight it. We can try to delay it as long as possible with safety precautions and nutrition and exercise plans, with advanced medical care and medicinal remedies. We can delay it, but there's no cheating death and there's no escaping it. Even for the more influential and the wealthy, respected Jairus and his wife and their social standing, there's no remedy. There's no privilege. There's no vaccination. There's no escape from death. Crises and death know no limits. They know no ethnicity, no gender, no age, no religion, no economic or social standing. No one is immune. We all face this reality. We're surrounded by its painful effects and its constant threat of our lives. Crisis and death like this do not discriminate. But as we saw earlier, neither does Jesus' love, his care, neither does his help and his salvation. No one is precluded. No one is marginalized when it comes to Jesus' love. But his love, his healing, and his goodness are often to both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, young and old. He is offered to you all, whoever you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you. Human death is not, as the Bible teaches, it's not a part of the natural cycle of life. It's not how God created the world. But it's an intrusion. Death is the old enemy that came as a consequence to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we read earlier this morning in the call to worship, hundreds of years before Jesus came, God promised in Isaiah 25 that he will swallow up on the mountain this covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And then after Jesus' death and his resurrection, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, telling us that God has given this promised victory, that death will be swallowed up in victory and loses its sting, and that this victory comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise of God. And all this sounds nice. It sounds great. But the question remains, can, can Jesus really have power over death? So let's look at what happens as Jesus goes into the room. Jesus goes into the room with the father and the mother and the three disciples as witnesses. 
And this healing, maybe you picked up on it, maybe you didn't, it's okay, is very similar to two other healings from the Old Testament. You can look at 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4 if you're interested. That's 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. They're two very similar healings of children who've died. And the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha come into a home, into the room, finding a child on the bed. And in both cases, Elijah and Elisha cause a big scene in the room, praying. They stretch themselves out over the bodies of the children, begging God to restore life to the child. And God does. But what Jesus does in this room, though it's similar, is noticeably and remarkably different from those prophets. Jesus is not just a prophet. He does not pray to God and ask God to help. He does not stretch himself out and cause a big scene. Instead, he simply takes her hand and he speaks life, saying, little girl, I say to you, that's it. No prayer, no stretching. This is no more difficult for him than the other miracles. His words alone are life-giving. Jesus, just as God spoke into creation, saying, let there be, Jesus speaks life back into this dead girl. Just as he commanded the wind and the waves with his voice, just as he cast the legion of demons with only his words, from death by the word of his mouth, And you can imagine, you can imagine the face and the eyes of these parents. Beginning with tearful weeping, moving to furrowed eyes of skepticism, thinking, what does this guy think he's doing? Rolling his eyes when he claims she is just sleeping. And then their eyes start to get big, in disbelief, they start to get watery in tears of joy and in gazes of amazement as they look to this young, young teacher who's simply by his words brought their daughter back to life. And so Jesus has power over even death itself. It becomes clear. How can he do this? He's no mere prophet, of course. As the ancient Christians wrote in the Nicene Creed in 325 AD, they confessed and agreed together saying, Jesus is very God of very God, of one substance with the Father. And as Jesus described in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So Jesus tells us with his own mouth. And the Bible tells us repeatedly exactly how Jesus defeats death. He defeats death for all those who place their faith in him. He defeats it by forgiving their sin, by dying on the cross for them, paying the penalty for their sin. 
He defeats it by his perfect, sinless life. A goodness which far exceeds mine and yours. A life that he lived in our behalf. Perfect, without blemish. A life that he credits to us as if it was ours. He alone earns a reward of eternal life that he gives and bestows to you who receive him by faith. What wonderful, gracious news that is. And so therefore we can have confidence and we can have hope in standing before God one day. Not because of anything we've done, but entirely because of what he's done for us. Because on that last day, Jesus promises to return. And that those who trust in him as Savior will be raised again to eternal life. Though they die, yet will they live. They'll be restored to a sinless new heaven and new earth where all evil has been defeated. Where there's no more tears, no more suffering, no more grief, and no more death. This is what God says. This is what he promises throughout the Bible. And it's always said with an invitation to you to come, to believe. And we know that Jesus comforts us. He comforts us with his word as we walk and as we struggle to believe. His power is not just seen in visible miracles. We're used to thinking of Jesus' power as something you can just see like we've seen in these four miracles. But as one scholar from South Africa reminds us, the miracle of conversion is no less spectacular than the miracle of being raised from the dead. It's the same power, the power of God and the Holy Spirit that brings a little girl back to life, that calms the storm in the sea, that causes evil to tremble and heals a suffering woman. It's this same power that will raise Jesus' followers from the dead on the last day. The same power is the power that changes our hearts from disbelief to belief, that changes our lives from being marked by death to being rooted in life. It's the same power that enables us to resist and to forsake sin and temptation now and to now live lives of obedience in gratitude for the new life that Jesus has given us. It's the same power that enables us and sustains us as we persevere in the middle of the most challenging circumstances. We saw in this story that the mourners laughed. They had seen death plenty of times. And so when Jesus said the little girl's not dead but asleep, it's contrary to their collective experience, contrary to what they can comprehend. And so they laugh. They're prevented from seeing the healing of this girl. They write it off because it's extraordinary. It's beyond what usually happens in nature. It's not something they've seen. 
It's not something they'll believe. It's dangerous for us to not believe. It's dangerous for us to rule out the possibility that this is real. But these things actually happened. And knowing that they actually happened helps us believe and see that they're real. These are real historical events. They're worthy of belief. They're credible. For example, Mark's book was written and circulated only 20 years after these events happened. So this little girl, if she was 12, you know, maybe she's somewhere in her 30s at the time Mark's book comes out. Very possible that she was still alive. Very possible Jairus was still alive. Even if they weren't, there was probably certainly witnesses in that area who knew about this. Anyone who read this story from Mark's hand could have gone and checked the facts. But there's no reports of dissension. There's no reports that this was not true. If Mark's story had been made up or embellished, it could easily have been refuted. But it was not. Not believing threatens God's judgment upon us. It leaves us in that state of death and misery. But in Christ we have hope. In Christ we have life. In Christ we have truth. Jesus heals this little girl. And he does it not just to make a point or prove that he's God. But he does it in compassion. He does it embodying good. He does it in demonstration to all of us that he can and he will bring the triumph of good over evil. He will bring the triumph of life over death. This story credibly attests that he, Jesus of Nazareth, will fulfill God's promise to restore all things to himself. To bring a renewed and redeemed creation, a new kingdom, that he's going to make good on this claim. His claim that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so this morning, I'm going to go back to my seat soon. We've put together some pieces of a story this morning. We've seen that there's much more in Mark chapter 5 than simply an incredible story that Jesus brings a dead girl back to life. We've seen a proclamation about who Jesus is. We've seen evidence that he is God, the author of all creation and life, the Savior who defeats death, who is simultaneously also patient, personal, caring, forgiving, inclusive, and giving. Jesus comes not in pride, not to be served, but to serve, 
as God, he delivers us from the grips of sin and death. And he does this by humiliating and suffering and giving himself, not by demanding something from you. He just calls you and invites you to believe. And so this morning I'll say these things to you and declare that this is a God worth following and believing, both exceedingly good and with the authority and the strength to bring about such great victory for you. And with victory comes celebration, right? I know these boys know something about victory and celebration down here. If we had the cure to cancer, we would share it. Who would keep it to themselves? When we have a victory, we share it. We proclaim it. And I want you to see Jesus this morning as a victor, a wonderful victor with a life so incredibly wonderful, a salvation so incredibly wonderful that you can't keep it to yourself. It's a deliverance that's so important for your life and for mine that we can't just hide it away without compassion for others who don't have it. But we want to tell them. We want to live our lives in commemoration of this and in proclamation of the Savior. Telling others about Jesus is not about trying to make people who are not like me more like me. It's not about trying to grow our our tribe or our church just for growth. But it's that we've been given this treasure, this joy, this peace, this hope, this assurance, this security. How could we live without it? And why wouldn't we want others to have it too? And so, in Jesus, you who believe in him have victory over evil and death that won't tarnish or fade but will last forever when he comes again. You have a victor who exceeds all goodness and who is worthy. He's highly exalted at the same time he's humbled himself. He values, loves, rescues, and cares for the rich and the poor, the sinners and the good doers, people of all sizes, shapes, and colors. And he's given himself to win and to offer you a victory over all evil and death. And he's promised even now to walk with you in these days and to care for you, just as he did for this child and her parents. So as you walk the difficult path with death, with evil, and with pain surrounding you. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus that invites you to believe and to arise. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. We thank you for your word, which you've given us to speak to us, and to guide us according to truth.
We thank you for caring for us, for our welfare, for our lives, for our souls, for our children. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for not leaving us in the miserable and helpless state we were in, but delivering us from death and fear, comforting us in our mourning. We thank you for humbling yourself to die on a cross in our place. We thank you that you rose again on the third day, conquering death. We declare this morning that worthy are you alone, Lord Jesus, of our praise and our worship. And we ask your help. Help us to believe when it's hard to believe. Comfort us. Help us to walk by faith and to bear good fruit especially when life is most difficult and when death bears its ugly teeth. Help us to stand amazed at the wonder and the goodness of you, our God, and guide us to declare this truth, this salvation, your gospel, here locally and throughout the world. Friends, before we sing our last song, as Pastor Adam, one of the things